Thank you for listening. This is Israel Rebound, a podcast joining listeners in Nebraska and other places to Israel, exploring the ties that bind us through culture, identity, and current events. I'm Liz Feldstern in Jerusalem, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alan Podash in California. Alan, how's it going? It's going great, Liz. I'm sorry that we're now separated again by uh, oceans because we had such a good time doing our podcast last uh, week. Uh, when we were together at the Silo Cafe, uh, which was great. I really enjoyed that. Um, So how are things with you? Good. We are, as you said, back to our long-distance podcasting. (laughs) Um, But uh, it was great that we were able to do the in-person one while you were here. And now I feel like since you left, it feels like it's been forever because we sort of have started here the the new school year and leading towards the holidays. Everything feels like it's moving very fast. Every day feels like four days. So, uh, so yeah, it feels like it's been a while, and I'm glad we're back at it. <laughs> yes, I agree with you. <clears throat> Speaking of school, we know that uh, the last time we talked, uh, we talked about this potential strike by the teachers. That didn't happen. So kids, all, kids all got to go to school, which is always good. Um, but then we've got the Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur holidays coming up. I'm sure that uh, there'll be some time away from school that the kids will not have to go to school because of the holidays. So it's kind of back to a vacation mode for some people. Uh, but I have a question for you. What's what's Israel like during the high holiday season? I am. So I'll say something first about sort of schools starting and then going on break for holidays and then maybe more about what the general holiday atmosphere is, at least how I experience it this time of year. I am, so in terms of school, you know, it's interesting um, for Americans. I think a lot of the holidays that people are used to kids being off school for generally fall around the same time each year, right? So like winter break is at the very end of December and spring break. Okay. It can move around a little bit. Um, but the, the Jewish holidays, because obviously the Hebrew calendar is a solar lunar calendar and different than the Gregorian calendar, which the rest of our lives run on. Um, you have what are basically larger fluctuations. So school in Israel starts every year on September 1st. And that could mean that Rosh Hashanah and then the rest of the high holidays, you know, right on its tail happens within a week of school starting, or it can be closer to a month. So that's just an interesting concept that sometimes kids start school and very quickly are out for a lot of days when they don't feel like they've gotten into any sort of a routine. And some years they have almost a full month. This year, it's kind of right in the middle, right? We have a Rosh Hashanah third week of September. So kids have some semblance of routine. They've had like two and a half full weeks of school, and then they'll start having the time off. So that's just one difference to note. Does that create anxiety for kids having to start and then have a significant break and then going back and having another break and then going back into the routine? 
I think it definitely can make it difficult for kids, especially if they're starting, you know, depending on their age, if they're starting in a new school, if they're just starting first grade, or they're just starting middle school, or they're just starting high school, or they've moved geographically and they're starting a new school, right? It makes it all that much harder to get into a routine. And I, you do hear teachers talking about it quite a bit, you know, that it makes a big difference. They all much prefer that the, not that there's anything any of us can do about it, but they, they would prefer that the high holidays come later because then there is more time for the kids to feel they've gotten into somewhat of a routine and knowing what to expect in school and knowing their teachers before they're then off for so long that by the time they come back, you're like starting over from scratch. Um, so it, it does make a difference. I mean, we make it work either way because it is what it is. But right. um, so you have you have to make it work. Uh, and, you know, kids are versatile or flexible. Um, so I'm sure that they can adapt to it. What What's the general tone of the country then when you go through all these different transitions and then you have the holidays that are significant holidays in the Jewish world? Yeah, so I'll say kind of two things maybe about the tone that people might find of interest. And one, I don't know if it's obvious or surprising, uh, but that is just you know, because Israel is a majority Jewish country, um, religiously and certainly culturally, the widespread nature with which people wish each other um, holiday greetings, right? So just as kind of, you know, from mid-November through the first week of January in the States, you would kind of expect that someone at uh, in a store or in an office would wish you a happy holidays or a Merry Christmas or a Happy New Year. In Israel, everyone's wishing each other a Shana Tova. Um, and that, you know, for, for Israelis that grew up here, they don't think anything of it. But for somebody that comes from elsewhere where Jews are not a majority, all of a sudden to be, you know, wishing one another a Shana Tova is a bit of a novelty. And, you know, I would say a nice feeling. Not that I personally ever minded being wished a Merry Christmas. I think some people, it's more of a pet peeve than others. I never minded. Just shoot back a, and a happy holidays to you. Um, but uh, but it is it is cool to get a Shana Tova all over the place. With COVID kind of waning, has that changed the tone at all? Uh, in Israel in terms of going to synagogue or congregating in people's homes? So the past couple of years, you know, every year has been a little bit different just depending on what COVID numbers were like at that time and how locked down we were and how open we were and were people going to synagogue or not going to synagogue or outdoors or getting together for meals, but only if it was outside or indoors or whatever. This does feel like it's sort of the most open of a high holidays that we've had in the past, I guess, three years almost now. Can that be? Wow. Um, and so I think people are very much looking forward to being able to celebrate this holiday with family and friends in a way that feels sort of quote unquote normal, like pre-COVID. Um, and so much so that while I can remember 
you know, every year hearing about people that were maybe visiting the country or, you know, lone soldiers or on year course type programs looking for places to be hosted for meals and hearing, you know, those kind of requests. Actually, this year, I mean, I have heard those requests as well, but I've also heard two places where it was the other way around. They were families or congregations looking for people to host because they very much wanted to be able to take this opportunity to have people in their homes to, you know, to to welcome others and, and have this sort of large celebration that maybe they haven't had that aspect of having strangers, right? It was hard enough to have your family gathered around a table for the past couple of years, but to be open up to some other person that you don't know that needs a place to go for a meal, that's like, you know, feels kind of wild. So I think people have been, uh, are excited about that possibility and that sort of return to the way things used to be. There is a natural tendency in Israel to, uh, or in Jewish communities in general, to host people for Shabbat and for holidays. Um, mm-hmm. so it's, a, it's kind of a natural thing to request. You're saying now that it's, um, instead of being the guest, the host really wants more guests in in their home. I think so. Maybe it's just me. Obviously, it's anecdotal, but it is something that I noticed a little bit this year. And I think if it is really a thing, which I can't promise that it is, it makes sense that it is a, in some ways, right, a reaction to where we are in terms of that feeling like a, a safer thing to do maybe than it has in a few years. So how, how do one go about inviting people and how one go about being invited? Is there a social network that kind of creates all these little connections? Yeah, I mean, I, there are lots of different ways. There are, you know, Facebook groups of just people looking to be hosted. Um, I think most congregations have some mechanism for both ways, right? For a person to say, I'm looking for a meal and for families to say, we'd like to, you know, open our home to others. Um, all the different gap year programs have their different ways that they either by connecting with various congregations or communities find hosts. Uh, so there are a lot of different channels. Well, I wish everybody that attends somebody else's home for Rosh Hashanah meals, that they take them a nice gift and, yeah. that, and that everybody's respectful of each other, which kind of leads into the next conversation. So if you think about people opening up their homes for for the holidays to just kind of welcome people back into society. I believe a topic that could be addressed um, or discussed greatly at these tables uh, is the current state of affairs for the upcoming elections in November. So there's a little bit of a transition to go from Rosh Hashanah to another hot topic that we enjoy talking about, and that's the state of affairs of the parties that are um, in place. I know that most of the parties have started to put their list together. And we can talk a little bit about that. But if we're too much... Yeah, on the one hand, it's a bit of a transition. On the other hand, I imagine that here in Israel, it's going to feel like it makes total sense because we'll have had time off for Rosh Hashanah, and then we're off for Yom Kippur, and then we're off for Sukkot, and then we'll be off for Election Day. It'll just be like the next holiday in the cycle. It'll come one after the other, and it'll just keep coming. So nobody really Uh, works for three months? (laughs) Well, so that's another thing. When I said before I was going to say two things on the holidays, the other one, I'll just say it really quick, 
is that there it is so entrenched in the Israeli culture to recognize that the holiday season has so many holidays so close together that even though there are technically some work days in between, there should be zero expectation of anybody accomplishing anything. And so the phrase after the holidays or is like a cultural staple. I mean, from August, if you ask anybody for anything, there's a very high likelihood that the answer you're going to get is no problem right like don't talk to me until the end of October when we've all taken down our Sukkot then we can talk until then nothing's going to happen um so that's just another bit of what it feels like to have holidays in Israel um but yeah we're moving on to the the political discussion and so yeah so November 1st we'll already have this next election. Number five, I think, or number four? Uh, number five, yes, of sort of this spate of, uh, well, not to, not to insinuate that this election isn't going to have clear results or anything, but it would be the fifth in this round of having sort of inconclusive election. <laughs> so, so the fifth election in what, a three-year period of time? Um. Yeah, probably just under three years, even. Yeah, so that's a an exciting time for people who are engaged with the political lifestyle of uh, of politics in Israel. Um, you and exciting I exciting is one word for it. I mean, it's there's it's constantly changing, right? And Israeli politics have always been like that. That from one election to the next, you have new parties, you have newly merged parties, you have parties that disappear, you have new leadership in the existing parties. But now all those same changes are still happening from election to election on this truncated cycle. So it's really a ton of change. It is almost impossible to keep up with who's running for what and, you know, what their likelihood is of of being successful. Um. So we know that there are yeah. parties that have fallen out of favor or of interest and a couple of new parties trying to come on the scene. We learned last week that the uh, Zionist spirit kind of fell apart. Mm-hmm. Um, and other, have you noticed any other parties that have kind of dissolved or come to life? Or how, do you, how are you seeing things from your, your vantage point? Um, so I think the parties that are not running this time around is the, uh, I mean, the most recent is the Derech Eretz party, um, which was only formed in 2020, but just, uh, just last week, they officially dropped out. So that's the most recent party that will not be running. Um, and then the the big news, I guess, of this week is the sort of new constellation amongst the Arab parties. Um, this past week, right, the parties were all obligated. Not only did they have by September 1st, I think the, the parties had to be finalized of which parties were running. And then just a few days ago, 
each party needed to submit its official list of the 120 seats on their party. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, right? Even though it will never happen that one party will get 100% of the votes in Israel, in order to be prepared for that theoretical possibility, each party builds their list of 120 seats and, and a person who's sitting in each one of those seats. So that list needed to be submitted. And the um, the three Arab parties that became the, the joint Arab list in the last round of elections had sort of a last minute falling out of how they were going to build that list of 120 seats. And they wound up submitting separately so that two of the three, the Tal and the Hadash parties, are still together as a, a joint list. But the third member of the trio, the Balad party, which is also happens to be the most sort of extreme uh, of the three, uh, submitted separately, and that was a that was a change and a and a surprise. And there's been a lot of talk about what are the potential political ramifications of this in the elections themselves. The party that joined the coalition last uh, last government was Mansour Abbas's Ram party. So mm-hmm. that that as an Arab party that functions outside of the joint list of the other three Arab parties? Correct. That is yet another Arab party. And it, you know, um, somewhat uniquely, because it had not happened in a long time, as an Arab party, joined the coalition. The the other sort of trio of Arab parties that together were the joint list would not have joined the coalition. Um, and of the the three, the sort of most hardliner, you know, would would not even consider the possibility of joining really any coalition, um, right or left, is this Balad party that's now no longer part of the joint Arab list, which is why people are saying that perhaps this will change, you know, what happens with the actual forming of a government because the two remaining members of this now joint Arab list are um, somewhat and then significantly more uh, mainstream, more flexible than the, the, the third party that's no longer part of it. So while they would not say at this point outwardly, oh, yes, we will support, you know, um, Yair Lapid if he becomes, you know, is trying to form a government, they they also won't say that they totally rule it out. Whereas the Bala, the third Arab party that's not part of it, would was always saying that, that there was no possibility that they would not ever consider joining a coalition. So that possibility, you know, opens up the discussion for different types of configurations of a potential coalition. You did a really good job of explaining that. <laughs> it's so complicated. Well, but I'm, I'm, even I'm, more complicated, <laughs> even more complicated, right? I'll just give you this other little tidbit, right? So the, the fact that these three Arab parties split into two, let's say, for the purposes of this election. So sort of what I just said now is where there's an opening for the split to potentially benefit a more left-wing or Lapid-led coalition. How could it wind up having the exact opposite effect? So the exact opposite effect 
is also a possibility because the likelihood is that the while the Balad party on its own will get votes, it will not be enough votes for them to pass the threshold, and they won't actually wind up having any seats in the Knesset. But those seats become basically, sort of, those votes, sorry, are sort of lost votes. And because they don't get counted, because they're not going towards any particular seat, it means that the number of votes required to earn each seat is that a little bit less, which could wind up being the exact amount needed to push um, the Likud, Netanyahu's party, from what people are projecting. They could be very close to 60 seats. It could push his coalition, obviously, not just the Likud. It could push from 60 to 61. So presumably this shakeup amongst the Arab parties will do something but we have no idea what that something will be. It could play out either way. Well, that's a very exciting way to look at the future of the next government of Israel. Um, do you think, and then I'll let us kind of close out, but do you think that this transition of the Arab parties will inspire more people, more uh, Israeli Arabs to come out and vote, or will they not come out and vote? So that is exactly the question. And um, it has been projected that voter turnout amongst the Arab population specifically in this selection will be amongst the lowest it's ever been. However, it would behoove both the um, what remains of that joint Arab list, the Tal and Hadash parties, and the entire left spectrum of the Israeli political landscape to encourage greater turnout amongst Arab voters because the the those additional Arabs that come out and vote are more likely to vote for either that Tal Khadash joint list, which could potentially sit in a left-leaning coalition, or to vote for Ram, which could potentially sit in a left-leaning coalition, or Meretz is the other party where Israeli Arabs vote, which, of course, you know, if they were in a coalition, it would be on the left. So, um, so really, there, there, there is reason for all of those elements to want to increase the percentage of Arabs voting in this election. So that's a really good place to pause and to see how things play out. Um, I know that next uh, Sunday when we record is the beginning of Rosh Hashanah, so we probably won't record then. And the following Sunday is, um, it's not Kol Nidre, is it? So. Well, hopefully we don't need to already say Chagim. Maybe <laughs> we can figure out some more flexible timing in between and, uh, and find another time to, to make it work, even if it's not at our usual spot. Yeah, that's what I was trying to avoid. So I didn't want to say after the holidays, but I do want to wish you a Shana Tova. Uh, any final... Shana Tova to you and any and all listeners. Thank you. Also, any any final thoughts on today's uh, podcast you want to share? I am just uh, hoping that everybody does, you know, have a... Shana Tova Mituka in all the senses of the world. It should word. It should feel like a a new year 
and it should feel like a sweet year and with lots of health and happiness and all good stuff. Well, that's a beautiful way for us to end this podcast. So thank you all for listening to Israel Rebound. As you heard today, it's a podcast with lots of enthusiasm and interest on current events and other topics coming out of Israel to be shared with others around the world. So thank you, Liz, for your time today. And again, Shana Tova. Thanks, Alan. Shana Tova.